Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, David. Hi, I'm David, compulsive reader. Thank you for asking me and for my tea. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to say tonight. Um, and I'm nervous, so I know that I'm in the right place. I have been coming to OA for over nine years. I have a little over seven years of abstinence. My abstinence is no binging, no purging, no flour, no sugar. Um, I have a sponsor who's in the room, and I have sponsees who are in the room. And um, I call my sponsor every day. I send my food every night. I do a 10th step, um, and I live a life where I don't have to eat compulsively one day at a time. Um, I I can say that um, 100% of the time, the phenomenon of craving has been lifted, um, and that's because I don't pick up my alcoholic foods one day at a time. I would say 95% of the time, um, the mental obsession and the mental insanity around food and my body and over-exercising and I'm not good enough and my genes are too tight, that's been lifted too 95% of the time. I came in here dying on my hands and knees, broken, lost, filled with trauma, um, without any tools for living my life, um, without any design for living, without any hope. I came in here really bottom of the barrel, not knowing if I was going to make it. And thank God there were people who came before me who are still here who also tell me, we didn't think you were going to make it um, (laughs) because nobody thought I was going to make it. Um, So I grew up, what it was like, I grew up on Long Island uh, in a town called Cold Spring Harbor. A very idyllic, perfect town. Billy Joel made an album about it. And um, everybody looked perfect on the outside. It was a very waspy town. People went to private schools. I went to summer camps. Um, My dad's a doctor. My mom's a psychologist. And, like, everything is very packed and fits into squares and perfect looking. And um, both of my parents are addicts. And... Um, My dad was a big man, and, you know, this program teaches me to take a step back and look at their parents. Where did they come from? Um, Before I point the finger and say how bad I had it, how bad did they have it? Um, My grandpa was a bad man, and he told my dad every single day that he wasn't good enough and um, beat the crap out of him, and my mom... Um, my mom's dad had an affair on the family and moved across the world, and my mom was raised by a narcissistic, uh, which left me with a narcissistic mom and a dad who told me I wasn't good enough and who beat the crap out of me. Um, and I know now that nothing changes if nothing changes, so thank God for OA um, for changing the family that I don't even have yet. Um, because I know that also this is a progressive illness, and the family disease of alcoholism is also progressive. And um, if I didn't get treated, if I didn't stop, if the buck didn't stop with me, then it would have just got worse for my kids. Um, so thank God for OA for stopping the pattern, the generational pattern of alcoholism and abuse, and I'm not good enough, and you're not good enough. 
Um, so that's how I grew up. And my dad was a big man, and he was an angry man, and he was filled with rage, and he was filled with thoughts from his dad, which told him he wasn't good enough. So he filled me with thoughts, which told me I wasn't good enough. And um, he, you know, I always share this from the podium. The first memory I have of childhood, my dad. Uh, would chase me and my sister through the house. And it was usually my sister. Um, My sister was very, like, provocative and always, like, poked at him. And I was just the referee trying to make it all okay, trying to make everybody happy. And, you know, we're all okay here. We got this. And I was always getting in the way, like, always getting in the middle, trying to take a punch so that she didn't have to get hurt. And um, he grabbed my sister by the chins, and he was calling her a fat effing pig just like by the chins and grabbing her and I jumped on his back and I was probably five years old um, just like trying to get him off and he's this big 300 pound guy and I'm a little five-year-old kid just begging my dad to get off my sister and he grabbed me by the shirt and threw me up against the wall and I remember we had this long hallway and I, I looked across the hallway and my mom was standing in her doorway and I was just screaming mom please help us we need your help please help us and she went into her room and closed the door. And that's kind of what it felt like growing up. Like, I was always a lost child in an airport. Where are my parents? Who's helping me? We need help. We need so much help. And um, I had never picked up food or alcohol or any drug in this time of chaos. It was just um, do or die, flight or flight, like, I just got to get by. There were days where I really didn't think I was going to get by. Um, One story I don't really tell a lot. Uh, My family and I, we always, every Sunday, I think it was Sunday, would go to this diner in Huntington. And um, my mom and my sister were getting ready, and they were late, and I was in the garage with my dad. Um, And he was, like, getting very uptight about them being late. And for some reason, I I said something to him. He picked me up and put me in the garbage can and, like, shook the garbage can and then took off to the Hamptons and left. And um, my mom, my sister, and I went to this diner, and they looked at my face, and I was covered in bruises, and they're like, what happened? And I told them, and I don't remember. What I remember feeling was like we just went on with our meal. Like, nothing changed, because nothing changes if nothing changed. Um, and this is when the disease, you know, the, the mental part of my disease really became prevalent. When I was a young kid, I remember standing at my grandfather's balcony in Florida. Um, he lived in a penthouse, and I remember looking over, thinking, if I jump, it'll all be over. Like, the problems will all be over. And I went back into his apartment, and I sat on the couch, and I was like, whoa, that was a scary thought. Um, Like, my mind started to scare me, and I was terrified of my mind, and I would go to school as a five and a six and a seven-year-old, and my mind just talked to me all day long, and I couldn't look people in the eye, and I couldn't raise my hand in the classroom, and I couldn't make friends in the playground. Um, My nickname was Mute Boy growing up. and I was, I got tested for being mentally challenged. Like, I walked around with my head down. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. And um, my dad's illness, his rage, kept getting worse and worse. And I crawled into bed with my mom when I was seven, and I said, we have to go. And she said, I know. And I said, we have to go tonight. And we packed up at 3 in the morning um, and moved across Long Island. 
and the next day there was a new dad living in my new house, and my mom said, this is your stepdad now. Um, and I had that conversation, I think, three or four more times, where this is your new stepdad now. And uh, just feeling as a kid, like, I have nothing to hold on to. There's no roots in this ground. There's no security. Like, for me, every fourth step that I've ever done affects my security, my emotional and physical security. Like, I just don't feel safe. I don't feel grounded. I didn't feel okay. I didn't feel, you know, that instinct, that mama bear instinct. I never felt that love. I never felt, let me make you some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and put it in a bag and have a great day at school. I felt like I'm going to die today, and I don't know how I'm going to get through the day. And then I found food. And thank God for the food. Thank God that there was food there instead of heroin or some other heart, ammonia, whatever it was, I was going to take it. I found the food, and the food became that security. The food became my love, and the food became my protector, and the food became my mom and my dad. And there, were, there was a couple-year period where my dad still had visitation on weekends, and I would beg my mom, like pleading with her every weekend that I had to go, please don't make me go, please don't make me go. And she said, honey, I need a weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, Ken and I, we need a weekend. And just going with my dad, I was just terrified all the time. And um, my sister and I, one night, my dad's abuse was getting really bad, and I remember feeling myself leaving my body. Um, totally dissociating. Like, I can't deal with this pain anymore, Um, which I now know is like a thing, but I didn't know what it was. It just freaked the hell out of me. And um, we escaped and ran across Jericho Turnpike, which if you're from New York, like, that's not something that seven-year-old kids should be running across in the middle of the night. We ran across Jericho Turnpike into a movie theater and called my mom and like, we need you to get us. And she came and got us. And that's what it was like. And the food kept... Like, for me, the pain, like, I'm just so sensitive. The pain is just too much to handle as a kid. It's just, I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to handle it. And the food, for me, like, it gave me, like, a barrier from the feelings. Like, it allowed, it gave me a cushion. It allowed the feelings to just, like, be a little less loud. And thank God. But the food works for me until I cross that invisible line and then it starts working against me but for a long period like I'm not at that invisible line yet like I need to hit a real bottom Uh, you know so I'm 60 pounds overweight as a kid I'm going to school Um, my dad loses custody but now I'm the fat kid in school and I'm getting picked on and I'm getting bullied and I'm getting name called every day every week every month every year and I'm going home and now my sister has turned into my dad And she's, you know, being physically abusive and being so mean to me. And I just have nowhere to go anymore. Like, what am I supposed to do? And, like, I think, I don't know how I made it. Like, I don't know how I got through, like, the 7 through 13 years. Um, And I had a best friend who still, you know, we met in kindergarten and he's still one of my closest friends. And his family took me in for weeks at a time. Um, my mom would go on Vision Quest to India, and his family would just, like, 
take me in. I never felt like I never. It was like I was raised by wolves. I had never been in a family where they served you milk at dinner and we went around the table and said, "How was your day?" Like it was so foreign to me, but I felt so much love from them. But I still felt like such an outsider. And they called me their fourth son. They called me their adopted child, and like they made me feel like I was one of their own. But my mind still told me, "I'm so broken. No family's ever gonna love me." And you know, I'm a Jew, but I remember one Christmas I spent with them, and I looked, and they had a stocking hanging for me, and like it just—it was like the 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 most amazing day of my life. And they used to have like couches for each kid with presents on Christmas morning, and I got a couch of presents as a Jew, and like <laughs> thank God for love, man. Like thank God for unconditional love. Like, thank God. And I didn't feel that again until I got into these rooms. And I didn't learn how to give that until I got in these rooms. Thank God for love. Um, so I'm 15 years old now, and I'm, like, living with my best friend's family most of the time, but I'm still, like, going home when my mom's back in America. And um, my sister's having a raging eating disorder, and I'm hearing her vomit every night. And um, I looked up to her, and I went into her room one morning, and I found her diet pills. And I kept those diet pills for, like, three months, like, as an option. I'm not going to take them yet, but I know I have the option. Because the bullying at school was worse than the abuse from my dad. Because these are my peers. These are supposed to be my friends. And um, I took a slim, fast diet pill. And they say it's a progressive illness. By the time I was a senior in high school... I was taking 15 pills of hydroxycut every day. I was a three-sport athlete. I lost all my weight. I was starving all day, exercising nonstop. I was like a... Um, and I transferred high school. So on the outside, I'm skinny now. I look kind of okay. Girls are talking to me. I'm getting attention. And inside, I'm still fat, worthless, ugly... Nobody's ever going to love me. No, who am I going to take these girls home to? I'm not going to take them home to my family. Like, all the time, there was just something, like, keeping me away from love and intimacy. And um, I would, like, pass out at sports practice. And um, I started throwing up. And, like, the, the illness of bulimia took me out of the planet. Like, compulsive overeating takes me out of life. Bulimia and calorie counting and, and like, diet pills took me off planet Earth. Um, by the time I was a senior in high school, I was in five colleges, and I was living in Manhattan, purging all the way through Manhattan. I could tell you any bathroom that has a secure, you know, lock on it, like, I knew everywhere to go. Um, I was calorie, calorie counting my way through Whole Foods, binging, binging, binging on my phone, how many thousands of calories I binged that day, then down to my 24-hour gym, and I'm not leaving the gym until how many calories I binged that day matches the treadmill. And that became, like, my new routine. And I started talking to myself like my dad used to talk to me. And I'm a piece of shit. And you're going another hour on the treadmill, and you're working it off, and you're punished. And um, I would spend, like, five hours a day at the gym on the treadmill. And um, there's no, like, going to class. There's no relationships. There's no 
there's a total inability to form two partnerships at this point. I'm blowing all of my commitments. Nobody knows where I am. Nobody knows who I am. I don't know who I am. And um, I hit a really bad bottom, which coincided with a really bad bottom in my other program. Um, and I was going to die. Like, it was just, it was, it, it, I was going to die. I was 20 years old and like, I hadn't spoken to my dad in 15 years. I'd never been in a relationship. I hated myself. I couldn't stop binging. I couldn't stop purging. I had no friends. Um, I hated my mom. Like, I came in broken. And I was going to kill myself. And I made up in my mind that it's over. Like, I'm going to kill myself. And I said, okay, I'm going to have one more binge. Um, so I went back to my mom's house on Long Island. And I'm binging through the house. Um, it's like November, so November or December, so I have all the Halloween leftovers, so I'm binging through all those, then I'm binging through my mom's, like, women's vitamins, I'm binging in the freezer, I'm, like, putting things in the microwave, in the oven, taking it out of the trash, eating it from the, like, I'm an animal at this point, I'm not, like, a part of human race, I'm an animal, um, but it's over in my mind, and I'm literally binging everywhere and I'm in the cupboard and I'm binging my way through the cupboard and this is no joke and like I used to hear these stories when I came in I didn't even realize that I had my own story I'm binging through the cupboard and the OA 12 and 12 falls out of the cupboard why like I have that pregnant belly thing um and I have the mental obsession and every time before in my mental obsession you're not going to stop me from my binge, like something greater than myself helped me bend over and pick up that book. Um, it's not like it was just there. My mom's a psychologist, so like we had. I grew up with all the books. I grew up with the big book in my house, and the OA 12 and 12. And I opened up the preamble, and it said something like, "We of Overeaters Anonymous have found in this fellowship a way to recover from the disease of compulsive overeating." And I remember, like, whoa, that sentence changed my life because for 20 years I thought I was the only person who suffered from this thing. I thought I was going at it alone. I didn't know there was a fellowship. I didn't know this was a disease. I didn't know there was a way to recover. Like, it just blew my mind. I thought, like, my whole life I was alone. Like, nobody's here to help me. And... um I don't really get along with my sister, but I got to give her credit. I went to her apartment in New York City, and I said, I'm going to die. I can't stop binging. I can't stop purging. And she said, you have to go to OA. And she put me out of New York City meeting list. And I went to a meeting every day for two years. Um, and I didn't speak. I sat in the back. I didn't say anything to anyone. Um, a God shot moved me out of New York into Los Angeles, and um, I kept hearing, you got to find someone who has what you want, so for me, it was like, okay, I want a straight male entertainment industry, or like successful, has a nice place, like, I don't know what I want, I'm so sick, I'm so toxic, how do I, I'm, my picker is so broken, I don't know what I want, um, but I saw that person, it was Josh, and I went up to him, and he was full. And it was my first outreach call, and I was like, this program isn't working for me. I'm the victim of, like, the program. Like, nobody wants to sponsor me. 
And um, I would share about it. I can't even get a sponsor in this program. And um, it's so hard being a straight male. It's so hard being in a fellowship of women. And this woman came up to me and she said, I'll sponsor you. And, and like everything in my mind said, what? No, you do not meet my requirements. She was like, <laughs> she was like 50 years old. African American lesbian who didn't have a car. Like that was <laughs> the opposite of everything I asked for, but something was like, yes, okay. And the first week we started working the steps, I got abstinent. Um, I've worked the steps pretty nonstop for the last seven years. Um, I've been abstinent for seven years. That woman's no longer in program, but she took the bus every week. Um, from like Compton or downtown to Culver City. And we met every week for a year. And I went through the 12 steps. I don't even know if she was abstinent, but she saved my life. And that first time through the steps saved my life. And um, I've continued to go through the steps and deepen my relationship with God. Um, and that's what it's all about. Like I've shared up here before, it's how it works. Like, there's no other way around it. How it works is how it works. It literally says in the literature how it works. So, like, people who come into the rooms and, like, audit the, the rooms and the meetings and or people from AA who have the AA brain but think they know it all and then come to OA and they're not... It's, it's how it works. Like, literally, rarely have we seen a person fail who is thoroughly followed, and it used to be directions. So if you just follow the directions, it'll work. Rarely will you fail. So I have to follow the directions, and I have to trust that like people want to help me. Um, and that's so hard for me to like accept. But it works, and every time I go through the steps, it works. And for me, I've had to get the steps off the page and out of like the homework assignment and because I, I can't tell you how many times I've had this spiral notebook and like just put a star on my step one and then we'll go to step two and like for me the steps it's a way of life it's a design for living like how do I get it off a banner and into my life as an application for my life in the day that I'm in like how do I work the 12 steps today with seven years of abstinence, without food obsession, without body obsession, like, I am still powerless over anything outside of me that I think is going to make me better. Dash, my life is unmanageable because I have an unmanageable thought mind. I have an unmanageable thought life. Like, my mind just lies to me. I wake up in the morning and I can't trust my thinking. My mind, if, you know, so I start to watch my mind and if I'm watching my mind, like, who am I if I'm not my mind? Um, and that's what I'm going for. I'm going to be that person. I want to deepen that relationship. I have to realize that I'm not my thinking. And, you know, my, one of my sponsors used to say, write down your most repetitive thoughts and tell me them. Start exposing your disease. And I would do that, and I would write down, what is my mind telling me? And I just became an observer. That's the second part of step one for me. I just watch my thinking. What's my mind telling me? You know, neuroscientists say we have 40,000 thoughts a day, but addicts have four thoughts that we think about 40,000 times. <laughs> Over the last seven years, my thoughts have changed. But it's, you know, my sponsor in another program, who I talk to every day, says, David, like, 
your thoughts are, I'm not going to get something that I want, or I'm going to lose something that I have. And that fear, like, that's where it manifests. And um, my disease, how it manifests is, I'm not going to get taken care of. Like, I'm not protected. I don't have roots. I can't trust other people. I can't trust. And what I've had to learn here is that there is a power greater than me that can solve all of my problems today. So I want to go for that. And, you know, I share a lot about, like, childhood and the wounds and the trauma. And I know a lot of people are like, let's go through the steps and just move on with it. I know now... um, and I love studying outside issues and like, you know, neuroscience, it's proven, it's a proven fact that trauma like exists in our organs. So I can't just do a freaking moral inventory and get on with my life. Like I need to get deeper into my subconscious. Like I need to get it out. I need to get it out of me. Like I have so much pain. I have so much trauma. And the more that my life gets better, the more that the feelings like still come up. And um, it says in the eighth step, like, deep down in the subconscious, like, there are emotional, like, deeply emotional conflicts that I have to get to. And um, for me, like, I've had to go to outside issues. There are some issues that I have to pray for the willingness to go confront those things. But at the end of the day, there's one power, and that power is God. And when I really go for God, when I really, you know, what, uh, the tradition police can call me off after, Emmett Fox, who, like, influenced the people who wrote the big book, you know, says, I have to pray with the language of my heart. That's what it's about. It's not about, like, just saying the serenity prayer at the end of the meeting. Like, I have to beg God. Like, I used to beg my mom to help us. And that's what I do today. And, like, you know, my sponsor, I call every single day, um, you know, the sponsor who wasn't available is now my sponsor for like six years. There are people in these rooms who know me so deeply, you know, my girlfriend of almost three years knows me more than anyone, but like nobody knows the relationship that I have with God today. And um, <laughs> it's the most important relationship in my life. Like, I beg God every day to help me. And um, I have never rested on my laurels in this program. I ask God all day to protect me from my mind, all day to make me feel safe, all day to show me a miracle. And um, that desperation has taken me into a fourth dimension. Like, I understand what it's like to live without my thinking. Like, I can live in the moment. I can feel joy for other people. I have so much love in my heart today. I have so many, like, amazing relationships in my life today. Like, all I have to do is send a text to, like, a bunch of sponsees and a sponsor, and they all show up. Like, I have so much fulfillment in my life today, but the most important thing I have is this relationship with God. I wake up in the morning, I pray for 20 minutes, I get down on my knees, I say, God, can you show me a miracle today? Can you help me have a new experience today? Can you show me some new prayers to pray today? 
can you relieve me of the bondage of self today? And as I go throughout the day, I take this power with me. Every relationship, every phone call, every interaction, God, can you just be with me? Can you help me be of service? And um, this relationship that I have today is, it's my source. It's my power. It's my roots. Like, I've had so many miracles. I could spend a whole meeting just on miracles that I've had in this program because I'm connected to a power greater than myself every day. Sometimes I fall. Sometimes I get triggered. Sometimes, like, something happens and, you know, the doors of the subconscious mind open and I feel pain from childhood and I take it out on other people in the day that I'm in. You know, I I fall. I'm totally imperfect. But I'm totally going for God today. And that's what it's all about. And my sponsor, thank God, I don't have a sponsor who's giving me directions all day long other than what does your higher power say about it. And as a sponsor now to many men in this program, my job is to just give, give them the tools and guide them toward a God so that I can let go. Like, it's not my job as a sponsor to direct someone's life. It's my job as a sponsor to guide them toward a power greater than their lives that can solve all of their problems today so that I don't have to answer their calls anymore. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. But that's what it's all about. I, I, I do need human help, but at the end of the day, I need so much help from a power greater than myself. And that's what I've found here. Um, that's my time. Thank you for letting me share.